Welcome. Welcome to Know Your Roles, the weekly podcast where we find unexpected connections across all your favorite mixed media. We cover film, television, music, literature, sports, and more. I'm one of your hosts, Dave Kleinman, and this is my co-host, Mr. George Peyton Manning Gordon III. Take it away, George. Thank you, Dave. I love that you could do a different one every week. So I, you got to got to keep the on these. I got a list. Yeah, I got to keep it keep it going. <laughs> this week we've got a pretty great episode. Both Dave and I and producer Mary Beth did a ton of research, and we're like super stoked to have director and cinematographer Adam Volerich, and we're going to be talking about directors and mythical creatures. But before we get to Adam, how are you, Dave? Uh, I'm all right, George. We uh, Hillary and I saw our first movie. Nice. Last week, since, you know, the pandemic uh, in theater, I mean, and we went with a friend of the pod, Mike White, and his wonderful wife, Rebecca. It was good fun. Um, You know, certainly a little weird sitting in a theater. We went to uh, Nighthawk, shout out. Uh, I think they're doing a really good job. There were four of us, so we kind of had our own row. That's huge. Totally. I mean, it was one of the smaller theaters, but like, you know, there weren't that many people and you know we're all vaccinated so it gives us the the confidence and the the peace of mind to be able to do stuff like that and it was cool we saw shiva baby which uh i didn't know like that much about going into and i i really enjoyed it's a comedy but if you are a jew like three out of the four of us were (laughs) it also plays like a horror film (laughs) like on purpose mike was the only non-jew out of the four of us and he was like i was laughing out loud but i could i could like feel your guys's anxiety <laughs> and i was like yep that yep you you you're right you were right what's uh what's going on with you george what have you been up to i'm good i am a a known insomniac i don't sleep very well especially if i'm stone sober and i have been drinking the past couple of nights so i find myself listening to more podcasts i like listening to people talk and i want to shout out this one podcast i listened to at four o'clock this morning that was like an hour and a half that i could have listened to another two more hours of and that is you're wrong about and the episode i listened to was uh the chicks versus the iraq war which is the dixie chicks that they used to be called versus the iraq war and it was an incredible hour and a half. So shout out to the You're Wrong About. Mary Beth, you know this podcast? I don't know the podcast, but I'm I'm familiar with the Dixie Chicks Bush scandal or conflict or whatever you want to call it. It blew my mind. So like uh, I, as I've mentioned before, I've uh, lived a great deal of my life in the South and I kind of remember the story, but I've forgotten how big a deal the Dixie Chicks were. In fact, they were the, uh, they're the number one selling film art- artist of all time. Going into 2003, and then that that happened in London. Uh, Nally Maine said that thing about about George Bush, which is oddly enough aged nicely. <laughs> and uh, the whole incident has, has aged poorly, and uh, they became a a different artist. I was taken aback how much I enjoyed their backstory, their the 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 incident, which I, I do remember because I was living in Tennessee, and uh, how they how they came out of it. So. Shout out to You're Wrong About the Chicks versus the Iraq War, which is an incredible, incredible podcast. Awesome. That sounds great. I, I'd like to check that out. I was like, holy shit, I forgot about that. <laughs> I, I remember that because my my opinion of the Dixie Chick, you know, skyrocketed. <laughs> cool. All right. Why don't we uh, open up the bar, George, for this week's bar talk? What do we got on tap? Today, we're going to be talking about Barry Jenkins' Underground Railroad, which premieres next Friday, All I think all 10 episodes on Amazon and uh, my Washington Capitals and New York Rangers fight in which a hockey game broke out. So <laughs> <laughs> 
First, let's, let's look up Barry Jenkins and Underground Railroad. Have you seen the trailer for this? Yes, it looks incredible based on the highly celebrated novel by Colson Whitehead. You know, it's heavy, the novel at least. It's tough, but it's very beautifully written. And Barry Jenkins is such an incredibly powerful filmmaker. I'm really excited for it. William Jackson Harper is in it, who I really like. I'm, I'm really uh, glad to see him like get more work. Yeah, The Good Place. I I adore him. That's exciting. Yeah. I actually worked with him like way back in the day when I was just like an art assistant and uh, it was super nice. So. Oh, that's lovely. Yay. Yeah. Good for nice people. Yay. Mm -hmm. (laughs) George, what are you? uh, Have you seen the trailer? You're pretty interested in it. I am. Yeah. Shout out to Barry Jenkins and all my Florida State people. What's up? You know who you are. Are some of our listeners who went to FSU. I'm not going to binge it because I'm not a binger of television. And Amazon is going to release all the episodes at the same time next Friday. I'll probably do like an hour, maybe every week because of I prefer to sort of process things after watching one episode. And it's super heavy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. A little bit. So definitely looking forward to it. Barry Jenkins is a, is a national treasure. So that's going to be right. So awesome. Yeah. That FSU film scene is cool. I actually have worked with some people from that school. They, they do great work. There's some stuff happening there. Mm-hmm. All right. So next on tap, we talk a, a lot about whether athletes like really want to fight to answer that question. The hockey team that you follow, the Washington Capitals and the New York Rangers, they both do want to fight because they started the game, the puck dropped and basically the entire team started to fight. George, I know you were watching. I was watching live. In fact, I stopped what I was doing because I knew I was on at seven to tune in. And I was texting some buddies back home. I was like, well, that escalated quickly. It might quickly from the very beginning. (laughs) And just a little backstory for our listeners, like Tom Wilson, who was our, who was our, who was our thug, who's actually very skillful, but uh, he's like, nobody you want to trifle with. Got in a fight earlier, like the day before. And uh, he rabbit punched a, a New York Ranger put that guy out for the rest of the season. There's only like six games left. So take it easy, Rangers fans. And they're like, all right, well, like when we play again, which happened to be the next night in New York, it's on. And in the first five minutes, there was a hundred penalty minutes. So they, 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 granted it was like hockey ended up being after that, but the first five minutes were like, and here we go. So <laughs> if violence is what you wanted, violence is what you got last night. I mean, yeah, I just never seen anything like that. Like it, it literally, the game started and it was a fight. Like there were six fights within the first five minutes. I would text one of my friends and I was like, dude, you gotta, you gotta watch this. It was like, what's happening? He was like, dude, this is insane. And he thought they were, they should stop it. And he's a bigger hockey fan than I am. He's like, they should probably just let tell everybody to go home because this is really turning <laughs> ridiculous. And the New York office is in, was, they had to been like, ah, oh, shit. Cause it's a bad look. Yeah. But it was entertaining. So shout out to the Caps and Rangers who decided they were, they wanted, there was violence that needed to be had. Only in hockey, man. Only in hockey. You can imagine this in any other freaking sport. No, this has been basketball. No. They buried the league under a jail. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I think that's enough of bar talk. Let's go and close this thing out and go talk to Adam. Hello. Hello. Hi, Adam. Hey, how's it going? Doing all right. It's so nice to see you. Yeah, it's great to see you. Um, this is uh, Dave Kleinman and George Gordon, Adam Bullrich. Nice to meet you. Hello, Adam. Nice to meet you both. How are you? How's your day? Yeah, good. Uh, nice to be doing this. Um, yeah, just working. Same stuff every day as it goes. <laughs> I feel like even if I didn't know this, uh, right off the bat, I could tell that you're like a DP 
because I feel like you your like depth of field, even in like your Zoom setup, is like super on point. I appreciate it. Yeah, I teach um, intro to film production at uh, Rutgers University, and that went remote this se- uh, this past semester. So, I mean, the you know for the past year, but I only teach in the um, fall. And so, when that was all like I, when we were like transitioning, I realized well. I've got like all these cameras just sitting around in my apartment gathering dust. I might as well rig one up as a webcam so that my teaching can at least be a little a little more comprehensible than through the tiny little dot on my screen. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. And then I kept it because um, whenever I do a Zoom call with people, the, they always comment on it. And <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad, uh, you know, we can follow in that tradition. Yeah, it's uh, it's conversation bait. <laughs> it's it's impressive. We, we color us all impressed. <laughs> so so Adam, uh, producer Mary Bess and Dave and I, whenever we have guests on, we do just tons of research, and either we're listening to music or we watch their films. And in your case, listening to your podcast, it's good to finally meet you because all of us have been listening to you for for several hours. <laughs> oh wow, <laughs> <laughs> that's so weird. <laughs> You have a very soothing voice, so it it works. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, thank you. That's very very kind of you to say. Well, yeah. I mean, I've and I've been listening to to your show as well, and I've uh, been really enjoying it. I feel uh, I feel a little bit like I shouldn't be here, given the quality of guests you've had uh, preceding me. Like I was listening to Josh Gondelman this morning, and I was like, I'm going to be on the same show as Josh Gondelman. That mathematically doesn't make any sense. But I'm happy to be here. <laughs> Actually, you're right. We should just end this now. <laughs> I always feel like I shouldn't be here, so don't worry. We're good. No, we we are thrilled. We're thrilled that you had some time to share with us, and uh, and like I said, it's lovely to see you. It's been, been I think since our friends Ian and Jasper's wedding mm-hmm. that I saw you and and lovely Monica. So it's lovely to see your face again. Yeah, likewise. Yeah, it's been it's been way too long. But I mean, I feel like it's been probably we all have a new a number of friends who it's been way too long since we've been been able to see thanks to all this shit. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's a good place to kind of start. You said a little bit about teaching before this. You were working as a DP, a, a cinematographer, as well as uh, making your own stuff, and that work kind of you know evaporated, uh, kind of over. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it sure did. Yeah. It's interesting, actually, right at the uh, end of 2019, I actually took my I, I, I took a job, which is would would have been my my like first real full time job since uh, graduating school when I was working full time in post production. And uh, so I started working for a, a production company and we were initially planning on being a TV, you know, development at TV film development and production company. And then, you know, two months into us being operational, the world exploded. So um, we sort of looked at the situation we were in and my my boss, who had already had the experience of uh, directing some narrative fiction uh, podcasts, like audio dramas, basically like looked at the situation we were in and was like, I think we should pivot to audio for at least the time being and see where that takes us. And so for the last like, you know, year and a bit now, we've been developing and producing, um, you know, audio dramas. Um, None of them are out yet, um, so I can't plug them, unfortunately. 
but uh, you know, we're in various stages of production and post-production and development on a couple different shows. And then in addition to that, sort of our like first foray into the audio medium as a team was a true crime comedy podcast kind of murdery. Um, so I've been doing that. Um, I'm very fortunate that I've been able to keep working during all of this, even though it isn't necessarily exactly the path I thought I would be. It's not the trajectory I thought I was going to have, um, which I'm sure is a feeling a lot of people have right now. But again, mm-hmm. incredibly grateful to be working. We've got a great team and, you know, I, I, I wish that, uh, there are already like press releases out so I could talk about what we've been doing. Cause there is some, there's some exciting stuff and I, you know, I'm excited for people to get to hear it. Uh, can you tell us the name of the company you're working with? Yeah, sorry. We're called uh, criminal content. Um, but if you, but if you look for us, you will find very, very little because we are sort of intentionally clandestine at the moment. Excellent. Yes. I thought it might be, uh, since you mentioned kind of murdery, which, uh, as was already stated, we are, we have all been enjoying very much. Oh, thank you very much. Um, uh, thank you for listening to it. Mm, of course. Yeah, I like the uh, kind of the episodic approach to to true crime. You know, you guys take like a uh, they're all one offs, which I I kind of appreciate instead of like some some you know longer form thing. What is it about uh, true crime that you guys are are into and trying to uh, explore? <laughs> Well, you know, as the as I said, the the company is called Criminal Content, so everything we does has a little bit of a, a criminal edge to it, whether that be true crime or uh, some other way of sort of interpreting the umbrella statement of uh, you know criminal content. Uh, so you know, we we like everything with a little bit of that edge, and uh, essentially, Zevin uh, Odelberg, the host of the show, he came to us and pitched the concept and my sort of brain immediately like fired off and I was just like, I need to work on that. Um, you know, he, he, you know, and he, and he came to us with the name. He's like, I think this show is called kind of murdery. And I think that each week we should investigate, uh, you know, a, a ghost town in, in the Mojave desert. And so the, the, I mean, the, the, basically that, like that right there was enough to get me excited. Um, and I think that to answer the like sort of initial question there, the thing that interests me about crime and crime related stories is um, just the sort of the, the depth of humanity you can find uh, on sort of either side of the moral spectrum uh, is very interesting to me. I was, uh, I got a chance to listen to a couple of eye of the duck episodes today, which were thoroughly enjoying. You had a, a friend of mine at Desmond on for, Oh yeah, Desmond's the best. Yeah, Desmond's Desmond's great. He's a really really sweet guy. Yeah. In fact, uh, I enjoyed your podcast so much. In fact, I don't know if I can watch movies or rewatch movies that I enjoy without thinking of that. Is that something you think about when you watch rewatch some movies? Wow, that's awesome. I'm 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 glad. Uh, thank you so much. Um, yeah, it has completely changed the way that I watch films, um, and not only the way I watch them, but the way I write them as well. Actually, so. It's interesting, you know, we've been recording the show for like maybe three months now. And I would say in that time, it's made me a better writer because the thing I'm sort of really keying into when I'm looking for these Eye of the Duck scenes is essentially whether or not the film I'm watching has a thematic element beneath the surface that is uh, strong enough to actually explore and talk about. 
And in all my years of writing and even dating back to when I was in school, the thing you're always taught is three-act structure, character development, you know, plot machinations. But there's, I think there's not nearly enough focus on theme. And I also kind of think that theme is something you sort of learn through living more so than writing, if that makes sense. And it's an incredibly vague statement. But I think that the nature of our show and the way that it has uh, changed how I watched films has made me consider theme before everything else when I write. And I think it's made, it's making my work a lot stronger, I think. That's interesting because you get like so you'll get so locked into any of those structures as far as like three acts or you yeah. know this needs to happen here or that and I think dissecting it, it uh, in scenes is a really interesting way. We just talk about explain what Eye of the Duck oh, means yeah. a, a, and uh, <laughs> who who you kind of grab that from. Yes. So uh, so first of all, so Eye of the Duck is a podcast I, I co-host with my good friend uh, Dom Nero, who's a writer and video editor at Esquire. And the premise of our show is that we search for what we call an Eye of the Duck scene in a film. And Eye of the Duck is a phrase that we're borrowing from the filmmaker David Lynch. And his idea is that when you, quote, study a duck... Uh, you can't really understand it unless you try to look for its eye. And he he has all these different variations on the quote. You know, he talks about like the eye is really fast and like the foot is really slow and you want to look for the first, you know, he's, he's, he, if you if you look up any of these videos where he talks about it, they're all pretty hilarious. Um, <laughs> but the basic gist of it is that essentially every film has a moment through which you can like crystallize the entire movie. And so each week we pick a film, normally one we love, sometimes it's a new release that we've never seen, and we each search for that scene and we sort of come to the show and uh, just, you know, sort of give each of our individual takes on it. Every now and then we have the same one, but it's not very often. And will you uh, talk about just Lynch in general as far as why he is uh, an influence for you? Sure. Yeah. Well, I I would be uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't point out that he's a bigger influence on my co-host. Um, Dom was uh, before we we went into making the show. He had been working on a book proposal for a book about Twin Peaks, and so he he's really the the more uh, obsessive fan of the two of us. But I I love Lynch. Uh, I think that he is such a, a sort of special filmmaker because he's one of the few people who I think when when you, you hear people talk about sort of like weird films or like out there movies, sometimes, you know, you watch one of those things and you're like, this isn't that weird. And, or, or like, actually this is, it is weird, but I don't really get anything from it. And I, I think Lynch for me is sort of the, uh, the, the only sort of, filmmaker that i'm super interested in the exception maybe being like josephine decker who tells stories that aren't reliant on you know traditional conventions of cinema and is able to still leave you with a like meditation on humanity or an exploration of like good versus evil and these, these sort of big thematic ideas that have become so important to to me over time so that's lynch <laughs> can you get into some of your biggest influences sure i am a. Uh a really big fan of people like uh, Danny Boyle and uh, Edgar Wright. Um, those are sort of two of the filmmakers that when I was 
you know, growing up and getting interested in film and filmmaking, uh, those were sort of the two filmographies that I went the deepest on. I mean, granted, there's not that many Edgar Wright films, but uh, when I started going to movies and taking them seriously, not just as a piece of straight up entertainment, but as something to be explored, he's one of the people I sort of keyed into. And Danny Boyle, I'm not sure what did it. I think um, I think it comes from my mum a bit because she has this habit of she'll tell me about a film and then kind of like spoil everything. <laughs> um, but she used to do this when I was younger and it would be in describing uh, films I was not allowed to watch because my parents were really strict about my viewing habits. I didn't see like a rated R film um, until my like teachers made us watch like glory in, you know, like, you know, sixth grade or something. And so my mum would, would, you know, tell me about a film and train spotting was this one that like stuck in my head when she was describing it to me. So as soon as I was like old enough to find a way to watch that movie, I sorted out immediately, like fell in love. I was like, well, this is the best film that's ever been made. And just uh, <laughs> went super deep on, on his filmography. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, probably a little bit too young. I'm probably probably like twelve or thirteen, I think. Um, but yeah, I think uh, his films really mean a lot to me. And then, man, it sucks. This is always such a hard question to answer because I just watch uh, so much stuff. But uh, another filmmaker who I really adore is uh, Paul Verhoeven, uh, who made like RoboCop and Starship Troopers and films like that. I think he's one of those filmmakers that despite not being of American origin, he really has America figured out and the films he make, he, the films that he makes are, they're all like on their face, these bold, brash, over-sexualized, hyper-violent, you know, commercial things, but they're also biting satires of, of this country. Mm -hmm. And I, I just love his lens on things. I think the only other person that gets, as close to him on a completely opposite end of the spectrum is uh is uh, uh vim vendors uh his film um paris texas i think is like like that and robocop like i could teach a whole class on how like these are the story of america <laughs> <laughs> yeah i would take that class you know because that th that makes it makes total sense and like those those first two robocop movies those are such a commentary i mean talk about it's commentary on police violence and like yeah. policing in this country and, and capitalism. Like, yeah. The privatization yeah. of everything. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Those are good. Those yeah. Are good. I love Robocop. <laughs> yeah. Just sandwich uh, that around Paris, Texas, and you got yourself a day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then another, another filmmaker who, uh, whose work means a lot to me is, is probably Lynn Ramsey. Um, if you've seen uh, her most recent film, you were never really here. Uh, that's one where it's like, I don't even know how to begin talking about it, but that's, that's the kind of film where like, I watched the movie, the film ended and I was just like, I, I think I should sit in the theater for like the next day. Like, I don't think I should move. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a knockout. Yeah, it is. But I mean, her, her, her whole yeah. filmography, like she, she always hits, like there's no misses there. When you're writing your syllabus for your uh, for your class, are are these some of the movies that you that you bring up as far as uh, production wise, or do you have some a bunch of other things that you have listed? Uh, it's I would say it's pretty broad, but um, the, I mean the majority of what my class focuses on is really the like technical aspect of operating cameras and lights mm -hmm. and audio equipment and things like that. So 
it's less about um, showing clips and analyzing them. I do, of course, bring references if I'm sort of explaining a certain technique and how one could employ it. So, yeah, I've got I've got clips from pretty much everyone I've I've mentioned so far. Um, that is sort of the beauty of of being a uh, a teacher is that you can um, you can just trick young people into watching all of your favorite films. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, every semester, it's sort of one of my goals is to um, is to is to trick them all into becoming fans of the Ang Lee Hulk movie uh, <laughs> because they're all you know that you know the, um, I, I love many of the films in 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 the MCU. Um, I wish it wasn't sort of the dominant force in filmmaking, but if my stu- a lot of my incoming students they are. Uh, they are big fans of these films, and they have every reason to be because they've they've grown up with them their entire lives. Uh, but to me, I'm like, you know, if you look like ten years before this, there's some pretty interesting filmmaking going on within the superhero genre. So, Angley's Hulk and like Sam Raimi's Spider Man, I'm always trying to trick trick them into watching. It's funny you mentioned that because it's like about an hour before we were going to do this, I listened to you on the Craft Services Pod. Yes, talk about Spider Man too. <laughs> <laughs> which is uh oddly enough just like one of my favorite movies of that uh of that i, I guess it's considered I don't, I don't know if it's considered mcu but you mentioned how different it is that it is of those movies can you want to you want to go into that a little bit sure yeah i mean for me the sort of biggest difference between the sam raimi films and anything in the marvel cinematic universe is the total earnestness of those movies um there's like no hint of irony whatsoever that's not to say that they are self-serious they're certainly not um i don't think any sam raimi project could be described as self-serious but they uh, that that series of films is just imbued with this earnestness within peter parker himself and that sort of defines the whole thing like whereas when you look at the entire mcu i think that because it is all built around that original iron man film which is a great film um there is this just degree of like snark that has found its way into the fabric of the dna of it which isn't necessarily a bad thing but it is it's just very different you know it's a, it's a totally different approach and it's it's a i think it's something they can lean on that allows them to you know if someone shows up and they're wearing like a silly costume they're going to make fun of the costume and you're going to laugh because the costume is silly. But in one of those Raimi films, you wouldn't really get a moment like that. You know, it would be like mm-hmm. the, the the costume is maybe not grounded in the strictest rules of reality, but you understand why it works that way, you know? Yeah. And they weren't operating in like some grander, you know, back then when they were making these films, they were having franchises in mind, but still individual franchises yeah. and not like, they weren't part of some greater context because like, you're right that Ang Lee Hulk movie gets such a bad rap. And I remember I saw that movie in the theaters and people were booing it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but if he made that today, people be like, Oh, this fits in perfectly, you know, because there's still, there are things in that movie that they do now that are, you know, like comic book type stuff. Well, I would say the, the uh, big thing that they do in that film that definitely wouldn't work in the MCU is that the final sort of showdown is, half like two men screaming at each other in a black box theater and like (laughs) vapor fighting in a cloud (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah that's (laughs) yeah you have a point there i was more i meant like more of like just the uh the craft of it is so akin to reading a comic book you know in a 
and the can and he like played out the campiness of it yeah. in a way that like people were like not i don't know if they were ready for yet but uh yeah it's an interesting film. i don't think they were yeah this past year, I got to read uh, Ben Fritz's um, The Big Picture. Oh, yeah. That's a great one. It's weird because it's like, I guess that book came out in 2018, 2019. It's two years later, two, three years later. It's honestly kind of a bit dated given the rise of being able to watch movies on Netflix and that sort of thing that they sort of talked about in the book. But now we're living in that world. Yeah, that comes at you fast. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it happened really fast. I listened to him on a podcast just like maybe six months ago. Even he was like, wow, it's kind of dead. Do you think there's a world where the 15 to like $25 million movie can still get made that's not a franchise film or not Fast and the Furious 12? I really hope so, because that's the space I want to end up working in. But I don't know. I mean, we're we're in a really interesting place where it's kind of becoming the Wild West. I think we are on sort of like the edge of a bubble in terms of streaming you know i think one of the reasons streaming was able to gain such a such a a strong foothold in everyone's lives is because for a little while there it was just netflix and hulu and it was like if it wasn't on netflix on hulu you know it might you know maybe it was on amazon prime which you all accidentally had because you signed up for the cheap shipping and so when it was just like those those two and a half you know streaming services carrying all of the history of film and television, um, it made sense to subscribe to all of them. But now uh, every single studio and platform is developing their own streaming network because they are seeing the sort of Wall Street uh, money that Netflix has been able to to get from that. Um, so I think this bifurcating of the uh, of the of the collective of all of film history is going to be a thing that causes this bubble to pop because no one's going to be able to afford to subscribe to all of them and no one's going to want to. And there's also cases of people not even realizing they're subscribed to stuff. Like I remember when HBO Max dropped, you know, I had friends who had Verizon. They're like, oh yeah, it turns out I have HBO Max now and and things like that, you know? So I think things like that, it's going to keep compounding and this bubble will pop and maybe that will will help lead to the return of of smaller films. I mean, it's, it's not to say that those films don't exist and aren't getting made. They are, but they are being uh, sold to distributors that don't have the same, you know, financial backing as a Netflix or a, or, or a Warner Media, and they can't promote those films in the same way. Um, so, I mean, if you look at, think, you know, people like A24 and IFC, even like those are companies that have been putting out those films consistently, but they don't have the the same money behind them, you know, and Netflix operates unlike a film and TV studio, you know, they up, they, they, they operate like a, um, like a tech company, you know, so they run entirely on like VC funding, they operate on debt, uh, whereas a film and TV studio can't necessarily do that. Yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, those type of movies, we're seeing them a little bit, those middle tier movies, if they're, they, when they're hyper specific, you know, like, uh, yeah. for, for example, like horror, there's been a very, because you can make that for you. A lot of horror films cost a lot less to make. And when yeah. they hit, they hit big. Right. I mean, that's sort of the, um, that's, that's the gamble that Blumhouse makes where, you know, horror is one of the few genres where, you know, it doesn't need any draw other than the genre itself. Horror fans will always turn out for horror movies. So you don't need to worry about casting, you know, some A-list actor or even a B-list actor. You can cast total unknowns. And if uh, you've got a good concept, people are going to go turn out for it. 
Uh, and then the Blumhouse model specifically is we're going to make, you know, 12 fil films a year. We'll drop one a month and all of them will have a budget of 10 to 15 million dollars and all the directors will have final cut. Uh, and as long as one of those movies hits, it pays for the whole slate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So now we just need that to expand to all genres and we'll be great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I kind of, uh, you know, what a, a kind of film that I never really used to uh, enjoy as a as a younger person. I think probably just due to like inherent like sexism and you know patriarchal bullshit that's you know tied into our culture. Um, I never really gave like rom coms a chance, and now in like my in, in like the past couple of years, I've like really gotten into them. Um, and I'm like completely like obsessed with like Nora Ephron movies right now. Um, I watched You've Got Mail, I think, eight times in 2020. Like, nice. <laughs> I'm not even joking. And like, so for me, I'm just like, I want more of those. Like, I want, I want, uh, I want people to to see the value in those films and, and start throwing money at that that genre. I think they exist on Netflix. It's like that's like the new place where rom coms exist, which is kind of rad. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I, I've I've seen I've seen a bunch of them, but. I don't know. I, I guess what I'm really saying is like, I want to find our next Nora Ephron and I want to give her as much money as possible. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I have a question about that. So yeah. that I'll post to you guys. Um, so it feels to me, and perhaps you share this opinion, but I, I'm curious to know what y'all think. It feels to me, especially since like, you know, 2015, 2016 and the rise of the, um, the administration that shall not be named, um, and all of these, you know, hardship has always been a part of the human condition, but considering the last handful of years, especially in America, feel like they've been so tumultuous and so difficult and so heart-wrenching, it seems to me that the rise of these big budget films and like the MCU universe and all of these really ultra realistic storytelling um, feels like it may be a reaction um, and an escape from the, you know, the society that we're living in and the pressures and, and the horrors that have fully come to the surface and, and have been so, so tumultuous. Do you think that filmmaking has responded in that way? Do you think that perhaps that's why we're looking at the film industry and these, these big budget, um, uh, strings of films now that perhaps you know we didn't before when something like you've got mail came out and was like the biggest movie at the box office you know it feels like a very different landscape now do y'all think that that has anything to do with things i think i mean i i think it, it's interesting the way you phrased the question i think it's it's not necessarily that filmmaking has reacted this way i think it's more the audiences have reacted this way i think that um being in sort of dire straits all the time we're all kind of sitting at home being like, man, it would be pretty fucking rad if Iron Man showed up and fixed things for me, you know? So I think the, I think that definitely sort of plays a role in it. And also credit to the people that, that make those films, like the feat of tying 23 individual films together like that. I mean, it's, it's pretty fucking impressive. Um, so and and that is a really good way to keep people coming back to see all these movies is if you treat them sort of like episodes of television where it's like, well, if you, if you skip one of them, you're not going to know what happens in the one after that. So you need to see all of them. Um, but I, I definitely think that people have needed more of an escape than usual the last few years. 
Um, and so maybe seeing um, two hot people in New York kissing isn't necessarily the, uh, the escape <laughs> they're looking for. Yeah, Tom Hanks is pretty hot. <laughs> he had a run. I love that you said that. <laughs> he, had, he had a good run. But it's like uh, the backing, right? Because it's like the industry has caught on to the fact like they're they're they put a, so much money behind it. You know, something yeah. like a you got mail or or uh you know anything of that stature, the the appeal from the capitalist standpoint, from the studio standpoint, is we don't have to spend a lot of money and it's going to be all profit to make this because they're cheap to make. But like with the MCU, they're like, we're going to spend a shit ton yes. of money. We're going to throw everything we have at it. And we're going to set new records every time we do. And, yeah. and we can tie them all in together. And it's also like a merch, you know, it, it's every it, like you, yeah. I don't know how many dolls you're selling of like, you got mail, <laughs> although maybe a few, but <laughs> <I'd buy him. laughs> yeah, I probably would too. But uh or yeah, some of those, uh, <laughs> yeah, but, 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 you know, it's, so it's like, uh, not to be cynical, but it, but it's like, uh, the industry is like, oh, this is where this is. Well, yeah, it's, it's, you know, to, to, to reference the book that George brought up earlier, the, the bigger picture, the fight for the future of movies, um, that book sort of chronicles the the switch from star-driven filmmaking to IP-driven filmmaking, um, intellectual property-driven filmmaking. So, um, for and and to also touch back on something you're mentioning the the cost of these films. You know, I'm saying it's impressive that they tied 23 films together. It takes a lot of money to maintain continuity of that level across that many num that many films over that many numbers of years. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, and the other thing that that book brings up that is, I think, a very salient point is this idea that uh, instead of making, you know, 20 films a year and trying to, you know, this one's going to be our four quadrant hit. This one's going to appeal to like women in their 30s. This one's going to appeal to, you know, this people. Instead, all of these, you know, big studios, they're saying, well, what if we just made six films and they all appealed to everyone mm -hmm. uh, and that way they all have the potential to make one billion dollars and they're only interested in making films that have the potential to make one billion dollars which is not your your nora efron movies but <laughs> but hey maybe For nancy myers nancy myers makes makes movies that the couple hundred million dollars i'm a big fan of something's got to give that movie is so fucking yes, good <laughs> Although I would say that over, you know, during the last year, like The Intern became another movie that I revisit, revisited a number of times because that movie is just like a warm hug. And, but she, she's a filmmaker, filmmaker who has like deceptively large budgets for her films because she's like the David Fincher of like, I, I don't want to call them all romantic comedies because they're not, mm -hmm. but she, she is the, she is as, um, you know, hyper obsessed with uh, detail as David Fincher is. Well, people talk about the, the the kitchens in all of those movies and how elaborately they are staged and how beautiful they are. I mean, there's a lot of money going into the set design alone. I feel like absolutely, and because also she she tells stories about people of a certain like socioeconomic class, and mm -hmm. you know, when you do that, that automatically increases the budget of a film as well because you know, I remember listening to Apatow talk about making. Uh, this is 40, not this is 40, um, uh, Funny People. And he was saying that that was the most expensive film he'd made up to that point because he was making a film about a rich yeah. person. He's like, you can't fake that stuff. You have to put the actual stuff in the film. C CGI, a kitchen cabinet, they're not going to do that? <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> we'll use Mandalorian technology to, uh, to CG a five-star restaurant into the background. <laughs> I hope she doesn't make her actors do 150 takes until they lose their mind like uh, David Fincher does. <laughs> More on that later, actually. Um, so Dave mentioned that uh, he went to a movie this year, and now that things are opening up, do you see yourself going to see movies and movie theaters and that sort of thing? Um, I'm dying to, you know, before the pandemic, I would go to the movie theater like three times a week. Um, just like that was my happy place, you know, and I'm the kind of like, I go by myself to the movie theater. Like, I don't even care if I'm going with people, you know, I'll just, you know, especially before the pandemic, when I was working mostly freelance, it's like, well, Tuesday, like I'm working from home. It's 11 a.m. Yeah, I'm going to go see a movie uh, and then I'll get back to work after that. You know, I was really I, I practically lived uh, at the movie theater. Um, I am super, super cautious about everything related to the coronavirus. Uh, I I try to take as few risks as possible. Uh, I am very uh, grateful to have been vaccinated. But even with the vaccine, just the the speed at which we have reopened everything and the fact that so few people are currently vaccinated. I mean, a tremendous number of people are, it's great news. We're on the right track, but for me, we're not really there yet. Um, I am, however, going to, um, it's, it's surprisingly cheap to do this. I mean, it's not cheap, cheap, but it's surprisingly cheap uh, to rent a movie theater for a private screening. And so um, I am going to, in like two weekends time, I have rented a theater for uh, to go and watch Mad Max Fury Road in theaters again, which is just like one of the best movies ever made. And I can't wait to watch it on a big screen. Yeah, that's a that's a good move. If you're going to do the one, that's a good that's a good one to do in a theater for sure. Yeah, but I am I am like I'm kind of kicking myself because it's like, man, if I was like a little bit more comfortable i could have gone you know this week and seen scott pilgrim versus the world in uh dolby uh, at the amc and like boy would i have loved to do that but uh i'm just not really you'll have other chances you know i think it's totally a uh, <laughs> a, a a personal comfort level because i agree with everything you just said like we're not like it's very it's it's a great privilege to be vaccinated and it gave me the confidence to go uh see a movie but i'm yeah. not going to be going like i was before at least not right now because i agree that like the way that we're blowing the doors off of everything in this city and state is like it's it's concerning very con yeah it's it's almost like Cuomo is trying to get us talking about something. Else. <laughs> yeah. I wonder why. Yeah, well, and like we we should be able to like yeah, our governor and mayor are like the most trustworthy people, and we should believe everything that they always have our best interests <laughs> in mind. Uh, but anyway, we're not going to go too deep down that rabbit hole. Um, one thing, one thing is like I didn't realize like Scott Pilgrim versus the World was being played in the theaters again. I hate that I missed that because that's got. Well, it just, uh, they have expanded it. It's so, oh, it, really? it, it did so well that it's going to keep on playing for a, a, at least another week, I believe. Um, but I, but the, the thing I wanted to see was they were re-releasing it specifically in the, um, Dolby, uh, screens, which mm -hmm. are the ones with the like high dynamic range and the incredible sound system. And of like all the films to see with like the best sound system, that's the one, you know? Oh, absolutely. It's got one of my favorite lines in the history of cinema because it was basically like a, dropkick to to me and all my friends which is his first record their first record isn't as good as their first record which kills me <laughs> every fucking time <laughs> their first record isn't as good as their first record which is 
so good. Yeah, that, that that I think it's Como that says that says that yeah. in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just this weird throwaway line. It's, and I, like the first time I heard it, I was like, "Wow, that many that guy just got me and my friends." Yeah, I mean that's <laughs> the thing about any of his movies is that he's like setting up jokes while telling another joke. Yeah, there's like all these like visual gags and like the background that you know you don't notice until your fourth or fifth viewing and things like that. And uh, yeah, yeah, I just I love what he does. Well, I think we are. Uh, we don't want to take up too much of your time. So it's a good way to transition to our game, which you we are super excited to play with you. Sure. Yeah. Let's do it. So this week we're talking about mythological creatures and directors. And uh, before we get started, uh, do you want to like say like one quick thing about some of these these two these two subjects? The re- I'll just uh, give you a quick preface. The reason I kind of came up with this game was uh, because we're both we're all film film buffs here, and also you have like this line in your bio and on your Instagram about searching for Bigfoot. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know if that even like if that was if that's just like a throwaway line for you, but I was just like, oh, that that could be fun. <laughs> it um, it's like kind of a bit, but it's also not a bit. Um, so I. I myself, I'm not like a a Bigfoot truther. Like I don't actually believe that Bigfoot is out there. I'm I'm very uh, science based, logic based, reason based. Um, however, I am fascinated by the idea of Bigfoot and the prevalence of the myth over generation to generation to generation. And I'm fascinated by the people that are fascinated by him. Uh, and so. Uh, I would say that, yes, it's a half bit in that sense. But also, if anyone listening to this is a producer of animated feature films, I have written an animated feature film about Bigfoot, uh, and please contact me. I'd love to talk to you. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So uh, it's a bit, but it isn't. Um, But yeah, in regards to these two topics, I will say I don't actually know a ton about um, mythological creatures, and I had to do a bit of research uh, in order to to make these comparisons. but I obviously, I love directors. I talk about them, you know, on my show each week. I talk about them to my students. I talk about them uh, to myself uh, in silence in the dark. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's, that's uh, yeah, directors make films and mythological creatures are, um, they're out there, I think. Maybe. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> maybe, maybe, yeah. All right. So we're going to do directors first, fellas, and then uh, followed by the mythological creature. And uh, for my first director, I'm going to really just talk about one film uh, in my comparison to the mythological creature. And the director I'm going to talk about first is John Singleton. Uh, and I'm just going to really going to talk about Boys in the Hood because it was a one in one. He is the first black filmmaker to ever be nominated for Best Director, which is a, which, oddly enough, that year was that year was super loaded with the exception of Bugsy, which because that movie kind of stinks. Everything else that was nominated that year was, uh, let's see, Oliver Stone for JFK, Ridley Scott for Thelma Louise, Barry Levison for Bugsy. I've already mentioned that. And then Jonathan Demi won for Silence of the Lambs. That is an A-plus year. So Stacked. It's, that's, that's, that one's loaded. And the reason why I, I, is I, I compare them to this mythological creature, because when this mythological creature gets compared to professional athletes, they're like a basketball player who's a seven-footer who can also handle the ball like a guard. So John Singleton, him being the first black director in his first feature, he is the unicorn of mythological creatures. Dave. There we go. Very nice. Awesome. I, uh, like I do sometimes on this show, I'm starting, my first one is the 
my the one that's kind of a stinker <laughs> um uh the one that i don't particularly like although a ton of people like him which is fine and that's michael bay and uh basically what i have about him is the same thing i have about this mythological creature which is not a ton going on but <laughs> but they sure can smash a ton of shit and <laughs> that's why he is cyclops he's a cyclops like the big <laughs> oafish dude with one eye tunnel vision um, I was going to say tunnel vision. Yeah. That's a very Michael Bay aesthetic. Yeah. And uh, mm -hmm. if you want to see like just a bunch of shit getting smashed, which, which is totally entertaining and has value. <laughs> um, yeah. You watch a Michael Bay movie. I like that. They're all the same to me, basically. So Cyclops. Very nice. <laughs> Michael Bay. <laughs> Adam, you're, uh, you're up next. All right. Well, I'm, I'm going to get this one out of the way because I just, I don't, I have a feeling this is the easiest one to steal and I don't want anyone to steal it. Um, so I'm going to talk about old, uh, Stevie Spielberg. Um, so I think that, uh, and I'll say he, he's by no means my favorite filmmaker, but he is kind of the goat. Like, it's kind of impossible to talk about contemporary cinema without bringing him up at some point in that conversation. And so, in the year 1993, Spielberg released Jurassic Park and Schindler's List, which I think is the ultimate flex <laughs> in cinema history. It's like the best one-two punch ever. And, you know, he could have basically retired right then and there, and everyone would have understood why, you know? Um, beyond that, I think that um, not just in that year... He's a filmmaker that I think operates best in like two different modes. And one is sort of like, you know, films that are designed on a cellular, cellular level strictly to entertain you. Um, there's always more going on, but they are designed to entertain you. And I'd say among that is like Jaws, Jurassic Park, Indiana Jones, films like that. And the other half are these like rich, like history lessons designed not only to teach you, but remind you of sort of like who we are and where we came from. And so that's, you know, Schindler's List, The Post, Bridge of Spies. So being the goat and being kind of like half and half, I think Spielberg is a fawn, which is a half human, half goat. Um, I think the most famous one is Mr. Tumnus from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. <laughs> very nice. Very nice. <laughs> Always good to get a Mr. Tumnus <laughs> reference. <laughs> I can't stop, I, whenever I think of Mr. Tumnus, I think of that SNL bit where McAvoy comes back on to to do it, and like all of the female cast is like lusting over him in that costume. Yeah. <laughs> George, um, uh, I'm, my next one, I'm going to talk about David Fincher, and uh, in essence, is which we mentioned earlier in this podcast about doing take after take after take Rooney Mara, the opening scene in one of my favorite movies in the past 20 years, the social network that was 99 takes. Other than that, it's actually one of my favorite scenes in the movie. There's a gone girl averaged uh, 50 takes per scene. And in mind Hunter, uh, there was a scene that was nine minutes long that shot, that took 11 hours to shoot David Fincher. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> I did not know this about David Fincher. My That's the thing. So he, he is this working class guy who becomes a monster. I've heard he's. I've heard he's a lovely guy. Oh yeah, hundred percent. Also does this. <laughs> yeah, which is why the mythological creature I compare him to. Oddly enough, whenever you see him in cinema, it is a lovely guy who becomes a monster, half were, half wolf. So David Fincher is the werewolf. Nice of mythological creatures. 
I like that. 50 fucking takes a shot. Like, that's like, he's a genius as a filmmaker. And he, I have, they do like his actors, they do subject themselves to it. Like, everybody knows that and they still speak well of him. So, yeah. But yeah, that's, yeah, that's a lot. It's a lot of takes. Yeah. (laughs) Um, (laughs) All right. My next one is uh, a filmmaker who I would categorize in the, good fun good clean fun category and she's someone who crafts a story pretty well although i would say that her great films are somewhat rare sightings and that filmmaker is penny marshall and uh for a few years she made a few really good films um a league of their own big i haven't seen these movies in a long time i'm not sure exactly how they hold up but i think they're you bite your tongue all right. All right. Well, I I thought you were gonna get you were gonna uh, try to give a jumping Jack Flash. Uh, no, no, no. Uh, Renaissance Man is a good movie. No, I'm kidding. But like Man. when I, I'm I plan on slam dunking your Penny Marshall take a little bit later. So go right uh, ahead. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, well, that is why as a filmmaker, she is the Loch Ness monster, Nessie. Um, ah, cool. Who is a character that we found in much uh, folklore? That's always like supposed to be kind of like a. It's like a big monster, and it's like scary, I guess. But the Loch Ness monster is not intimidating and not scary. It's more of like a loved character, and it's like if you see it, yeah, you you got a great experience. And yeah, so some of those movies uh, from the nineties, they're good. <laughs> George, <laughs> maybe not. Or maybe reading your eyes, George. Yeah, yeah, I can't. I can't wait. <laughs> all right. Uh, all right. So uh, for my next one, I'm going to go with uh, Hayao Miyazaki. Um, he is a filmmaker who makes you know animated films that are like painstakingly created and are absolutely gorgeous. Um, and beyond that, for for me, his films often feel like a, a balm, like something that heals me. Um, even his darker films, uh, they get to something about, uh, what it is to be human and be alive that, uh, just always speaks to me. Even, even if it, if it is one of those, those darker ones and I'm in a, a darker place, he always finds a way to sort of, uh, uh, find the light there. And he, I think thematically is someone who's very interested in like healing the world, whether that is through like rallying against evil or or like literally making a pointed, you know, argument, you know, about climate change. And um, so for that reason, I think that he is uh, most similar to the phoenix, which is like a gorgeous bird when you look at it. Um, They have healing properties. And then the final thing that I think makes him like the phoenix is this notion that the phoenix, when it dies, is uh, reborn uh, immediately. And Miyazaki has sort of famously announced his retirement a number of times and then been like, uh, actually, I got one more in me and come back and, and made another film. And so for that reason, he is the Phoenix. Nice. So I'm going to wait to do my, my Penny Marshall a little bit later. I got I to got, I got, I calm <laughs> down first. It's like I, my, my blood has reached a, like a, a weird level. So I need to bring it down. I didn't insult or like overly praise her, so I don't. It doesn't matter. I think I think that's the problem. Yeah. You didn't praise her. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> doesn't matter. Uh, my next filmmaker has directed one of the greatest movies of all time, and that is Point Break. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, in essence, I'm really just talking about her movie, just this movie, because as much as I like the other movies, it's like Point Break is something that that lures you in. Just like the mythological creature that I'm going to compare Catherine Bigelow to, which is the siren, because they lure you in. So Catherine Bigelow is the siren of the mythological creatures, only because Point Break is the greatest movie of all time. <laughs> yeah, I love it. <laughs> If it's on TV, I'm not watch. I yeah. gotta watch that. <laughs> so the next filmmaker I'm going to talk about is one of my favorites of all time. I think almost all of his work is just truly transcendent and incredible. And that's Akira Kurosawa, the famed Japanese filmmaker. And mm-hmm. one of the things I love about him is he tells so many different types of stories, uh, makes a lot of different type types of films. But the craft is always, you know, top notch and also draws from a lot of different cultures and influences. You know, he this is someone who is in, influenced by American filmmakers like John Ford and also uh, influenced by Shakespeare. You know, he did uh, Shakespeare adaptations that are just incredible. And also as a filmmaker, he <laughs> is someone who makes incredibly powerful work and scenes of like great destruction and uh you know just a uh, uh, visceral power but also stunningly beautiful and that's why as a mythological creature he is a dragon he's a dragon again fo- found through all different types of cultures and something that we've like in the like cultural zeitgeist it, it it's almost a thing that we think is real you know because because like it's just part of the culture of all cultures so strongly. Um, and also another interesting parallel is that Kurosawa trained as a painter. And that's why, like, you know, he he painted full-scale paintings of his storyboards. And again, dragons are images that have been painted by all cultures. And I'm sure we probably all know people with dragon tattoos. So uh <laughs> yeah, Kurosawa is a dragon. Nice. I like that. All right. Well, uh, I'm going to talk about a filmmaker I've already brought up before, which is uh, Danny Boyle. Um, so as I mentioned, like I love his filmography uh, and it is an extremely varied filmography. Uh, you know, he, it, it's, it's almost like hard to say what the defining quality of a Danny Boyle film is because he jumps between genres and styles throughout his career. So, you know, it's like I mentioned train spotting earlier, which is, you know, about, you know, uh, heroin addicts, but then it's a dramedy about heroin addicts. And then he goes on and makes something like 28 days later, which is like a, th- a zombie thriller. And then after that, he goes and makes Slumdog Millionaire, um, which is like a feel good drama. And then loops back around and does sunshine which is like a futuristic sci-fi film about astronauts trying to restart the sun you know so he really plays in all of these different spaces you know and then the last couple of films he's made it's like steve jobs which is a biopic and then he was going to direct a bond movie and then left that and ended up making that film yesterday which is written by richard curtis who did like love actually so because of all this uh i think danny boyle is a shapeshifter (laughs) nice job yeah he he really does i've always loved that about him too is like you can't tell one thing one film from the next like thematically but there is like some kind of a feeling you get that that holds through the catalog 
yeah, there there is always carryover, but it's like I feel like you rarely see that kind of carryover between films when they're of such varied like genres, um, you know, and like just things that shouldn't go together, you know? Yeah. Yeah. George. I think it's time for my Penny Marshall, my Penny Marshall take. I find Penny Marshall's movies to be adorable, uh, especially big, especially A League of Their Own. They are Mm -hmm. wildly entertaining, super cute. In fact, Penny Marshall is wildly entertaining, super cute. From the moment she had the L from Laverne and Shirley working at a a brewery in Milwaukee to her being at Game 7, the New York Mets versus the St. Louis Cardinals. So, like, I find all that to be great. R.I.P. Penny Marshall, cute and adorable, which is the mythological creature that I'm going to compare her to, is a fairy. They're cute, they're adorable, and I enjoy them when I see them in the film. So Penny Marshall oh, nice. is the fairy of the mythological creatures. Nice. Very nice. Uh, for the record, I like those films. Uh, the My only hesitancy about declaring big a great film is i haven't had uh i don't there's not a great track record with like comedies from that era when i for me personally when i go with the that i liked as a kid and i go back and watch and i'm like oof but that one i feel like it probably holds up i haven't seen it in a while but i'm i'm certain that um i'm gonna feel really weird about the uh nature of the romantic relationship between yes okay (laughs) tom hanks and (laughs) yeah you just reminded me yeah it is weird it's 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 entertaining, but I want you guys to think about this though before you get into your next one. And uh, over my left shoulder is uh, a poster for Midnight Run. Yes. Yeah. Oddly enough, uh, Robert De Niro was kind of sick of doing movies in which he was like super serious. He wanted to do like a comedy, mm. and he oddly enough read, read for the part of Josh Baskin in Big. Now, yeah. imagine that movie. <laughs> Is Robert De Niro as Josh Baskin? It would be a very, very different film. <laughs> very different film. So you have that to go on. It's like, a, what do you mean, Zoltar? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like, <laughs> fucking, I fucking, yeah. I thought, what the fuck are you talking about? You know, actually, in my in my younger years, in uh, in when I was in college, my when over the summers, I worked at the park where they shot the uh, the Zoltar scenes. Awesome. Oh, nice. Yeah, in New Jersey. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. So, if you have any thoughts about Big, just imagine if Robert De Niro <laughs> plays Josh Baskin. I'm gonna watch it later and think that. Yeah, <laughs> it's gonna be a great time later. <laughs> um, all right, my next one is another international uh, director, and that's one of my favorites as well. And that's uh, Pedro Almodovar. Mm. And I've mentioned him uh, on the show before, and he's someone who. He kind of makes films along a spectrum of comedy and melodrama, you know, and and some of them skew more towards the straight up straightforward comedy and some of them skew more towards straightforward melodrama. Um, But they're always really beautiful. And I I think that he is someone who is always entertaining because he's so curious. He's so intellectually curious about people and about relationships and about loneliness and, and all sorts of things. Uh, And, and also I I find his work like in every, in every film, there is at least one or two shots that are just so uh, arresting that I, I 
have to take a moment, you know, to, to feel them and process them. Um, and that's why as a mythological creature, he is a Coco Pelli, which is a native American, uh, fertility deity, but also like a trickster and like, uh, um, playful, uh, flute player, uh, flautist. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, I, that's why, uh, that's Pedro Amadovar. Very interesting, but also very playful and, and fun. And his, his films are full of like a lot of, uh, like pomp and circumstance in, in the best, the best kind of way. Nice. I like that. That's a great take. Um, so for my next one, um, another filmmaker I, I already mentioned, and I, I want to make it clear, I didn't just like decide to like match, you know, creatures to filmmakers I like. I actually, because I knew so little about mythological creatures, I just Googled mythological creatures and I started going down the list and I was like, the moment one reminded me of a filmmaker, that's sort of how I did this. So I came, I'm going to, for this one, I'm going to flip it and do the creature first, if that's all right. Okay. So this one, there's this, there's a creature from Greek mythology called the Lamia or Lamia. I'm not really sure how to pron pronounce it. And it's uh, th this was a once the mistress of Zeus, um, who we all know was a notorious fuckboy. Um, and so <laughs> Zeus's wife Hera killed her children and turned her into a monster that is like half snake, half like oversexualized naked woman. And her whole deal is that she has like an insatiable appetite for sex and violence. And she is cursed and literally cannot close her eyes and is forced to just always gaze upon the world. And that made me think of uh, someone I already mentioned, which is Mr. Paul Verhoeven, who, as I said, makes these films about America. Um, you know, his, his eyes are always open. He's always seeing uh, this country for, for what it is. And uh, he is, shall we say, uh, obsessed with hyperviolent and oversexual uh, imagery. Um, you know, the highlights being Robocop, Total Recall, Starship Troopers, especially Basic Instinct in Showgirls, if you want to talk about hypersexualization. <laughs> um, and his new film, which is coming out later this year, is a non-sploitation film uh, about a, uh, a, a woman who becomes a nun and something, something uh, sex, from what I... That's all I really know about it. <laughs> it sounds like a Paul Verhoeven movie. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so that's why he's the Lamia or Lamia. Nice. All right. So I'm going to get down. This is my last one. I usually try to, to stick the landing with this last one. And uh, the theme of this is unsettling. And I find this director's movies to be unsettling. I can't wait for movies to come back in a safe way because I find horror to be my favorite genre to watch with people and not with people I know, but with strangers. Because I just like, I just, I kind of like watching people watch something. Mm -hmm. If we're going through the exact same thing. Yes. And uh, Hereditary and Midsommar were two movies I actually saw in the theater, in a packed theater. And those are two unsettling movies. And Ari Aster is the director I'm talking about. And the mythological creature I'm going to compare him to is a mythological creature I find to be also unsettling. It's that one eye thing. I find that to be kind of gross. Just like right there in the center. So Ari Aster is the cyclops of mythological creatures. Nice. Because they're both unsettling. I almost had him on here as the werewolf because he is like a nice looking Jewish guy, but then he makes films that are like fucking evil. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Very quiet and unassuming. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, yeah. that's a dude who, uh, when he guns up, gets under the full moon, like he fucks you up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Totally. Yeah, somebody yeah. yelled, oh, no, in hereditary. <laughs> <laughs> um, during, um, I saw, I, when I saw uh, Midsommar in theaters, I was, I, I was sitting next to uh, two women who I, I didn't know. And um, during the scene where, um, what's his name? Jack, uh, Jack Rayner, is that his name? He's, mm-hmm. he's being like, he's drugged down. He's being seduced by the young woman and the room full of naked women. One of these people who I did not know leaned over to me and said, tag yourself. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, I've never had a meme happen to me in real life. (laughs) Like, I'm glad I, (laughs) you're like watching the movie. Like what? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. All right, so I'm going to round mine out with my last one with a filmmaker that, George, you already mentioned, someone that I also love, as you do, which is John Singleton. And uh, the the theme of this one is doing a lot with a little and also someone and something that probably deserves to be talked about a little bit more. And, you know, the doing a lot with a little for John Singleton – you mentioned Boys in the Hood, George, but that movie had a $6.5 million budget, which is nothing. Um, and it did almost $60 million at just the American box office. Kind of came out of nowhere at, for, you know, the, the mainstream industry, so to speak, uh, and did really well. And, like, you know, he was able to make – he made a bunch of films in the 90s that, like I said, I think probably don't get talked enough about, which is Poetic Justice, Higher Learning – um, I think baby boy, which is, you know, much later, but I think that movie is really good. Uh, four brothers, not the greatest movie, but I had a lot oh, of fun. Man, watching. You're crazy. I, well, you didn't <laughs> let me finish. I had a lot of fun watching it. Uh, I saw that fucking movie in the theater, George. So, um, but, uh, that is why as a mythological creature, uh, something that is small in stature, but packs a huge punch and not a lot of people talk about it enough, which is a jackalope. <laughs> which is uh, the American mythological creature that is uh, uh, part Jack rabbit with uh, antelope horns. And uh, this creature doesn't exist, but, but some people say it does. And they actually make taxidermy busts yeah. of it uh, that are very popular in like Wyoming and the Southwest. Um, but uh, uh, the, the jackalope, the, the story is that, it's extremely dangerous and like hunters have to be like very careful of it because it's just this small little rabbit that doesn't look intimidating at all, but it's almost like the, uh, the, whatever they call it, but the, the rabbit in uh, Monty Python and the Holy grail (laughs) that like violently murders everyone. Um, And yeah. And also John Singleton only five foot six. So small, but made very powerful, impactful films. So the the jackalope of uh, mythical creatures. Nice. So my last one. This is another instance where, like, I I came across the the creature and I was like, and it immediately like rang a bell in my brain. So technically, he is more of a showrunner producer than he is a director, although he does also direct. But uh, I want to talk about Ryan Murphy. Uh, who, to be clear, I, I have only limited knowledge of his work. I've only seen the first season of American Horror Story and um, what's the movie? Uh, Eat, Pray, Love. Um, but as far as I can tell, this guy releases a new TV show every week. 
And so for that reason, he is the Hydra, which is a creature where you cut off one one head and three more sprout <laughs> in its place. And so it's like, this guy is never going away. Like anytime a show gets canceled, three more seem to come out on like Netflix and FX. So he's the awesome. Hydra. <laughs> yeah, he's. I've also seen very few of his work, but no, I'll see his name like everywhere. <laughs> yeah, everywhere, absolutely yeah. everywhere. Yeah. yeah. What else has he done? Uh... He, I think he's done. Hasn't he done like a lot of those those uh, limited series? Like, didn't he do the, yeah, the one did, about uh, what the? He did uh, the OJ Simpson one, um, American Crime Story. I think it's called. Then he did. Um, I mean, he did like eight seasons of American Horror Story, and then there was uh, Pose, which is oh. still airing now. Uh, Feud, Betty and Joan. Yeah. That's um, awesome. Hollywood on Netflix. Like the guy is prolific. Yeah. And I, I first remember hearing about him in Glee. Yeah. He's responsible That's for Glee great. and yeah. Nip Tuck. Oh, yeah. I feel like those were for me like some of the first oh, things yeah. that he he came out with. I want to say I think he did the assassination of Gianni Versace too. Did, that yeah. would make sense because it stars um I can't think of his name Chris Damon Damon Chris Damien Darren 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 Chris Darren Chris yeah he's everywhere he's unstoppable yeah he is <laughs> good for him yeah good for him that's incredible is that why Hydra is like the 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 evil group taking it back to the MCU uh, is responsible for Bucky I think it's yeah. It's the same concept, right? Because they're like they're yeah. working behind the scenes. So if you, I mean, if you cut off one head, they're just there's more of them out there. Multiple heads, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Every, everything's just intrinsically tied together, guys. <laughs> it's it's all coming together. We are all part of uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, whether we like it or not. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're living in it right now. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that'll do it for the game. It's like a plus work there, Adam. It's but, like uh, you you came prepared, which we love. We we love all our guests, but like when the ones who come prepared are like, yes. all right, cool. They get it. They get well, it. I, was, I was so nervous. I was just like, I don't know how to do this. So I just, right, I'm going to stay up and learn about mythological creatures. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I mean, I loved all your answers as well. Um, it was, I, I loved all those takes. Um, and now I'm like, fuck, I want to go watch some John Singleton and Penny Marshall films. I know. Well, that was the thing about, that's the thing about your podcast is uh, I, I was like, fuck, I got to watch all these movies again now. Um, <laughs> Good. I'm glad. I, that's uh, th- that's one of the things about our show is, uh, you know, oftentimes it is a love letter to a film that we we care about and and we hope that it inspires people to, you know, to check the movies out. Like especially things like um, like Ishtar and After Hours, which are films that like don't get talked about nearly enough. And uh, you know, it's like if we can get like one person to watch Ishtar or After Hours, then the show has done its job. Yeah, I'm totally with you on that. I mm-hmm. After Hours was one of the first ones I, I listened to because I. I fucking love that's like I'll, yeah. I'll say stuff like that's it score that's my favorite Scorsese film <laughs> just to get like to mine at the moment yeah it's it's in my top two or three it's it's so good yeah um it's interesting though we we get we get this from a lot of people who um I mean it's it's mostly film people and podcast people they'll tell us like oh I love the after hours episode that was a great one but for whatever reason, that is our least listened to episode, which I think just speaks to the fact that people aren't aware of that film and, and haven't and not nearly enough people have seen it. Totally. Totally. Yeah. It's like, I mean, we're in the same boat. Oddly enough, our uh, correct me if I'm wrong, guys, is like our most listened to episode is with Blake Schwarzenbach, the least singer of Jawbreaker, and he has no social me- media presence at all. Yeah. 
Wow. <laughs> and we've had Josh Gondelman. We've had Harik on the Bola. We've had all these other people who are big on social media. Emily Heller. I don't know if the most listened episode is a dude who's never on social media. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that specific niche thing, you know? Yeah, yeah. 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 So this is all just a shot in the dark. And who knows how long podcasts will really last? I mean, you know? But I'm I, yeah. I'm not on camera, but you can't you can't see that I'm, I'm joking. <laughs> um, but Adam, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Thank you for having me. This was this was so fun. This was so lovely. Yeah, it was delightful. I had such a good time. Uh, before we let you go, once you plug something for us, yeah, um, I would love it if you would take a listen to my podcast, uh, "Eye of the Duck." We release uh, every Monday uh, on every podcasting platform, and we are ramping up to our first ever mini series uh, this summer. It's all about the Alien franchise. We're going to have ourselves a Xenomorph summer. We will be covering Alien, Aliens, Alien Cubed, Alien Resurrection, Alien versus Predator. Alien versus Predator Requiem. We're going to talk about uh, Prometheus. We're going to talk about that video game, Alien Isolation. And then we're going to close it out with Alien Covenant. So if you like that franchise, you can have a great time. And if you don't like that franchise, you should listen anyway, because we've got some really cool guests. Awesome. That's You're speaking George's language. Uh, Dude, yeah. what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're all like yeah. I think I think all three of us, especially especially George and me, have a, have a, a strong affinity for... For those films so that sounds wonderful absolutely yeah, I, that's cool. <laughs> i think i just had a stroke Lord, I'm right <laughs> we're all we're all just like freaking out on camera <laughs> <laughs> um, i mean you can like, see in my apartment there's like but on the other side there's 36 by 24 alien poster frame so no you're speaking my language bro awesome. i'm there for that <laughs> hell yeah yeah it's, it's gonna be fun um and uh i'm very excited and then uh if you want to watch my short films you can find all of those uh at adamvolerich.com that's v-o-l-e-r-i-c-h and uh, i'll ask as well do you have um is there anything exciting coming up with kind of murdery that you're looking forward to yeah, I mean, I'm, I look forward to every episode um, and we always have uh, really fun and interesting guests. But yeah, please check out Kind of Murdery as well. Um, we just dropped a new episode. It would have been a, a few days before this show airs uh, with Eric Slick, who you may know from uh, Dr. Dog. And uh, he just drummed on uh, Taylor Swift's new album. Um, he was a really, really fun guest. And uh, we explored the town of Goldfield, Nevada. Awesome. Um, so check it out. Well, this has been great. So, yeah, this is amazing. Thank you so much for having me on. I had such a good time. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. All the best to you and yours. Good to see you. Yeah, great to see you, and and lovely to meet you both and and talk with you. Take care. All right, bye. All right, thank you again to Adam Volerich. That was a lot of fun. Definitely check out his website, adamvolerich.com. Listen to his pods, Eye of the Duck and Kind of Murdery, wherever you get your podcasts. They're a lot of fun and a great listen. We want to just, again, say thank you to Adam. That was great. Now we're going to go into Last Call, where we talk about what we're uh, looking forward to and what we're going to be checking out coming up here. George, what do you uh, what do you got going on? What are you looking forward to? Just one thing, and that is uh, the Alex Gibney doc, The Crime of the Century. Of, for our listeners who don't know his uh, his documentaries, he did Go and Clear and uh, Out for Blood in Silicon Valley, two of my favorite docs in the past like 10 years. He's got a new one about the opioid uh, uh, industry and you know, opioid uh, like, uh, problems that we have in America. And I cannot fucking wait. So that's, that airs this Monday. I think it's two hour, I think it's a two or three parter. So 
It doesn't matter. It could be a 10 parter. Alex Gibney is a plus plus in my opinion. What about you? Yeah, man. His first movie Enron, the smartest guys in the world. 2005. He was on yeah. some other shit. Even I back then for the, I was a intern for the production company that, that did that movie. <laughs> um, that was, yeah. And it was the only movie that we were like, this fucking movie's awesome. Everything else they did. We were like, man, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, that, that sounds great. Uh, I'm on, I'm looking for one thing as well. And it's a new docu-series that's going to be on HBO by Raul Peck, who is a documentarian and activist. He made I Am Not Your Negro, the documentary about James Baldwin. He also did a film uh, called Lumumba, about Patrice Lumumba. He, Raul Peck is Haitian. He was born in Haiti, and his family fled the Duvalier uh, dictatorship and settled in the Congo when like Patrice Lumumba was, was right during his rise. But uh, anyway, his new project is called exterminate all the brutes. And it is going to be a fucking knockout. It is about the history of this country and about white settler colonialism and white supremacy. And like I said, it looks like an absolute masterpiece they had him on democracy now the other day for the entire hour talking about it and time magazine <laughs> said it may well be the most politically radical and intellectually challenging work of nonfiction ever made for television <laughs> so uh yeah not exactly light fair but i i'm definitely like gonna get into that uh when i when i have the mental uh capacity for it but uh it looks crazy and it's also like there there's parts of it that are that are dramatized as well and like some interesting acting actor interesting casting choices like uh Josh Hartnett is in it um I haven't fucking seen him in years what yeah he's he's like plays part he's like plays a fucking colonial settler or some shit uh it's not going to like he's I don't think it ends well for his character he's in he's in penny dreadful so <laughs> Oh yeah, so okay, he has been working. He has been working. Yeah, I, I like I like Josh Hartnett. I don't. Sorry, I didn't. I don't watch that show, but I like him. I don't watch either. Actually, I just know that he's in that. I'm a wealth of useless knowledge, Dave. Yeah, well, th that makes two of us. So, um, but uh, yeah, exterminate all the brutes. Like I said, from that title, you can get the idea. It's a fucking knockout punch. All right. Now we're going to check in with producer Mary Bess for MB's booth. Mary Bess, what do you got going on? Thanks, Dave. Um, I don't have a whole lot to offer this episode um, because I've spent the last week transitioning from small town USA back to life in New York City. And uh, I am very grateful for the time I have spent with my family and very grateful to be back in the greatest city in the world and um, excited to be back with y'all and excited to meet you both in person for the first time uh, sometime in the next week or so. Awesome. Yes. I think we're all excited to do things in person and like actually make real connections. I'm going to be, I'm concerned because I'm, a, you're going to hate me. I'm super <laughs> annoying. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> it's going to be really bad. Impossible. Impossible. I mean, I, if I do, if I do, we'll just, you know, the whole podcast will dissolve and like horror fest will probably dissolve too. And you know, yeah. a lot of people's lives will be ruined. So it's really on you, George. It's like, what is this guy's problem? <laughs> 
Now, I am so grateful for both of you. Grateful for this time. And uh, yeah, excited to, to be back and vaccinated and looking out for each other, you know, opening new doors for ourselves, getting back to getting back to being together, which is the point after all. Yes. Agreed. Here, here. All right. We're going to go ahead and wrap up this show. I'm going to say thank you to George. Thank you to producer Mary Best. Thank you to the amazing team that did our theme song, Nate 88, Alan Sack Kid, and Kazo Oslo. Thank you again to Amanda Zeller, who did the awesome rebranding for us, those cartoon faces. I'm still digging them. Please subscribe, rate, and review to Know Your Roles wherever you get your podcast. Check us out on social media at KYR Pod on Instagram and Twitter. And George, what do we got going on next week? Give the people something to be excited about. Absolutely. Next week, we have writer, producer, comedian, and climate activist, Raleigh Williams. And next week, we're going to be talking about pool players and politicians, Dave. Can't wait. Just like Bart Scott. (laughs) All right. That's going to do it for us. Everybody, please be safe and be healthy. And uh, my usual send off every week it's going to continue to be the same uh, i don't have anybody to shout out this week there was uh everybody was pretty clean this week so please wear your mask over your fucking nose peace all right we're out you know the road,